chapter 8, at uh, the ram and the goat, which he later identifies with Medo-Persia and Greece. And we know that this uh, starts, again, the Hebrew section. So we are expecting this to have special application to the Jewish nation. And uh, that's what we're really going to look at. He's really kind of said what he said about the ram and the goat to bring us to the point where we are tonight to deal with a specific event that I think is the main point of chapter 8. What we've done so far is kind of put it in context. This also helped us with the overall analysis of that framework dream in chapter 2 and the parallel in chapter 7 where you have the four empires and then God sets up his kingdom because this identifies empires number 2 and 3 by name. Only the fourth empire is not not identified by name, but the fourth empire is the one that follows the Greek empire and the one in which God set up his kingdom and both of those things would say the fourth one would be the Romans. So, but we're in now the, the third one, the Greek Empire, where the large horn was broken, that is, the king, Alexander the Great, died, and four of his generals divided up the kingdom among themselves. So the, four, the third empire is divided into four parts. That's where we are. Are there any questions or comments before we move forward? Okay. Chapter 8, then, verses 9 to 14. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven, and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply, while the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Okay. Now, we have to look at this pretty carefully, because he's giving us a lot of information. He'll give us the interpretation also a little later on that will help as well. But out of one of them, that is, out of one of those four divisions of the Greek Empire, came forth a rather small horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. Now, if this little horn grew to the south and to the east, and therefore toward the beautiful land, the land of Canaan, what direction does that likely mean he came from? The northwest. The northwest, right? Because in growing south and east, he's growing toward the beautiful land. Now, I don't know if you know much about the divisions of the Greek Empire. Uh, It was divided, if I'm not mistaken, into Macedonia, Thrace, Syria, and Egypt. Now, the only two of those that really matter much for Israel are Syria and Egypt, because guess where Canaan is? 
right in the middle between them. And in Egypt, you had the Ptolemies that were reigning. And in Syria, you had the Seleucids that were reigning. And we'll see in chapter 11, they fought back and forth across the Holy Land over and over again. But this is evidently talking about the, uh, a, a king from the kingdom to the northwest, which would be Syria, the Seleucids. And one of the Seleucid kings grows exceedingly great toward the land of Canaan, grows up to the host of heaven, and causes some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and tramples them down. Evidently, uh, manages to uh, conquer and defeat some of the leaders of the nation of Israel. It magnifies, it even magnifies itself to be equal with the commander of the host. So here's, here's a king that exalts himself to be equal with God, removes the regular sacrifice, throws down the place of the sanctuary, so desecrates the temple, takes away the sacrifices, and uh, flings truth to the ground, just is totally blasphemous, totally arrogant against God and against the worship of God for a long period of time until finally the holy place is properly restored. Now, historically, there is little debate, um, and certainly I think shouldn't be any doubt, that this little horn is one of the Seleucid kings named Antioch's Epiphanes. And Antioch's Epiphanes reigned from about 175 to 163. And he uh, did exactly what this says. He invaded Israel, conquered Israel. He did all sorts of horrendous things with Israelite leaders, killing them and and uh, you know taking some away and appointing others kind of making the priesthood even a political office uh, based upon his desires and um, he you know desecrated the sanctuary he set up a lot of uh, you know idol shrines in, in the temple he actually caused a pig to be sacrificed on the altar of burnt offering and he ordered a pig to be sacrificed on the altar monthly, on the monthly date of his birthday. He anointed the sanctuary and the most holy place with pig's broth. You know, now think about how all that feels to a Jew. That's just an outrage. That's obscene. That's just, I mean, wow. I mean, I don't know exactly what would be analogous to that for us. You know, but it was, it was just horrifying. And so that's what this is talking about. This is giving a biblical perspective on the history of this period. This is the period of silence. The intertestamental period where they don't have a prophet that's going to be there telling them what to do. Telling them that God's got this under control. And it will look to them... Like this is just some horrible thing. It'll look to them like God has just abandoned his work. You know, what's he doing? But this will show them that this was all part of God's plan. And that, that things are going to turn out okay. Eventually, in the end of verse 14, the holy place will be properly restored. And in fact, they, they instituted an annual feast 
celebration commemorating this rededication of the temple. It was an annual event, and it's mentioned in the New Testament. It's mentioned in John chapter 10, verse 22, where it speaks of Jesus being in Jerusalem at the Feast of the Dedication. We know that feast as Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights. It's not a feast that's in the Old Testament. It's a feast that was established in 164 or whatever when they drove out Antioch's Epiphanes and rededicated the temple. So, you know, Antioch's Epiphanes does horrible things, but it's a relatively brief period. And then things, you know, they're able to re-consecrate the temple and and things go back to uh, more or less normal. Now, we're going to get the interpretation of this in a minute, but that's uh, that's the main outline of what, what happens and what he's talking about. I realize that may be new material for some of you. So, what questions and comments and thoughts do you have on all that? You said Feast of Dedication is uh, during John 10, 22, it's Hanukkah, like what we would recommend? That is correct. What, what year did you say around the time? About 164. Okay. B.C. B.C.? Yeah. Okay. Okay. It says 2,300 more evenings and mornings. Is that... I have no idea what that is. Okay, so it has nothing to do, obviously, with, like, the time that he brings... It may have something to do with it, but I've never figured out what. Okay. (laughs) I haven't figured out that anybody else knows either, so if anybody has any uh, thing to share on that, you're welcome to. There's a few things in some of this that is just beyond me, and that's one of them. Okay, it doesn't even seem to be, like, a complete symbolic number. It doesn't seem like it. I don't know what to do with it. How many years is that? Six years and three months. Okay, thank you. <laughs> because um, this note uh, talks that about that it's the period from 171 B.C. when peaceful relations between Antiochus and the Jews came to an end to December 25, 165 B.C. when Judas Maccabeus restored the temple for its proper worship. Maybe. But, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think some of that strikes me as arbitrary. Yeah. But maybe it is. I don't know. Cass. You said in verse 9 that uh, the glorious land was Canaan? Yeah, the land of Israel. Okay, because I was confused because my footnote says Psalm 48.2, and I turned there, and it says, Beautiful and elevation of the joy of the whole earth. It is Mount Zion on the sides of the north. So is that just talking about Canaan? Yes. Okay, I thought that was it. Mount Zion is the mountain that the temple in Jerusalem was built on. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. So, Psalm 48 is a meditation on Zion. Now, granted, there may be some, you know, deeper meaning as to the place of God or whatever, but it is a... It's See, that, a that's what I was thinking. Yeah. But. So, in verse 9, you said he came into this one came in Let's see, toward the south and toward the east, would it be above the Mediterranean or or down to the... Because to go south and east, you're going to have to be out in the water. Well, I, uh, well n- not from Syria. It'd be southwest. Oh. Yeah. Go south and go east. I'm wrong about that. You'd have to be up in the area of Tyre and Sidon. 
That is a good point. Uh, then I'm wrong about that. I'm, I was thinking of West when I said East, so I don't have a good thing to say about that, but that is a good observation. Yeah. And, well, Syria, but Syria was, does go up further. Yeah, well, that East it's, is interesting. I mean, it, it, Syria, according to this map, extends all the way to the coast above Tyre and Sidon. Yeah, that's probably true, although that's not where the capital of Syria would be. Damascus, right? Right. That's a good, I, I was I was mentally turned around on my east there, so uh, that's a good observation. I don't have a good thing to say. Although, I was going to say, the, the main travel routes, there was one next to the sea, the way of the sea, I mean, maybe, maybe come south by the way of the sea and then turn east toward Jerusalem. One other possibility, if, I don't know how it's translated, but it toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land mm-hmm. is a possibility. I mean, that's what I would, it looked to me like three directions when I first read it, but maybe it was saying... But what's east of Syria that... That desert that they conquered. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. East of Syria, like Babylon and stuff, in Mesopotamia would have been... Depending on where you're down the border of Syria. And I don't think, as far as I know, I could be wrong. I don't know everything about Antiochus, but I don't know of him having campaigns in that direction. But there may, may have, I mean, I don't, yeah. I'm an expert on that. So. Which is our resident expert on Antiochus, we're going to say. I don't know of any, but I don't know. Just checking. I just so these four horns split off in the previous section. And so is Antiochus Epiphanes one of those horns? Like one of those horns? He is an outgrowth of one of those horns. I think those four horns represent the four kingdoms that the Alexandrian or the Macedonian Empire was divided into. One of those was the Seleucid Empire, the Syrians, and he was one of the Seleucid kings. So he was an outgrowth of that empire. Was there any reason why the horn was little again? Uh, I guess, you know, he wasn't the whole division. He was just one of the kings that grew up from that division. Which of the four, which of the four provinces started with a T? Thrace. Anything else you want to say or questions I can't answer? (laughs) All right. We do get the interpretation, which probably isn't going to change a great deal, but it is helpful to uh, see it. So why don't we go ahead and read that. I think we can do all of that at once. So 15 to 27. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Oli, who called and said, uh, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, But he touched me and stood me upright. Then he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. The ram which you saw, having the two horns, 
They are the kings of Media and Persia. Uh, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of the nation, but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty, and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause the seed to prosper under his rule, uh, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told, is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I... Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Okay, so who's sent to interpret the vision for Daniel? Gabriel, who was one of the two angels with a name in the Bible. The other one is Michael. Michael. Now, there's a ton of angels in the Bible. There are all kinds of angels, but most of them we just don't know the name but Gabriel is found several times. He's in several different passages doing different things. Obviously a trustworthy angel. And, you know, when when Gabriel comes near Daniel, what happens to Daniel? Knocks, gets knocked out. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Isn't this what nearly always happens when a human being has any kind of close contact with any kind of celestial being? You know, certainly you'd expect that if you had contact with the Lord, but even with angels, this is overwhelming. You know, they are close enough to God, there's enough glory and majesty associated even with angels, that unless they come really incognito, you know, like they did maybe to Abraham in Genesis 18 or something, if they come in their glory at all, then it's just overwhelming. And so, you know, apparently Daniel faints, and uh, Gabriel touches him and gives him the strength to stand up and hear the explanation of the vision. Comments and questions on that through 19? Would you you believe it's God's voice in 16 that, that was talking to Gabriel? Perhaps. Um, I don't know what uh, Although, let's see. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the line. He called out and said. So I don't know if the one that looked like a man necessarily would be the Lord. Probably some other angel or some other representative of God that's telling Gabriel to go over and tell Daniel what this means. Right, I was I was visioning that 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 the man or that the man that he saw, like the grandson of the man at fifteen, is Gabriel, and then when he just and then he just heard a random voice that he can see who was speaking. But I assume it was God's voice talking to Gabriel. That's what I'm visioning. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? In fifteen and sixteen. Could be. That could be. Maybe Gabriel is the one who looks like a man. I'm not sure about that. Okay. It's never clear when. I mean, a lot of times you get passages like this. Who's even thirteen? I heard. 
a holy one speaking. Yeah. And another one said to the one who was speaking. <laughs> so the one that we have quoted was not the one speaking, yeah. but it's what they said. <laughs> you do have a lot of that. Out. Yes, especially in the apocalyptic books. Zechariah does a lot of that. Where you're like, you got this one going here and this one here, and that one says to this one and says to that one, and whoa. Um, and I don't know, you know, I, I think one of the things we see is God's just got a lot of servants. I mean, yeah. he's got lots of celestial beings. And, you know, so, but we don't get the names of most of them. So, you know, it's like, well, this holy one or that being or, you know, that angel or whatever. And it gets just kind of confusing to keep track of who's who. Um, it doesn't matter when it's all said and done, obviously. But, yeah, I don't don't know the answer to all that. But I doubt that either one, either Gabriel or this uh, man or the voice of a man necessarily is God. But. I think it's funny, at least in New King James in verse 18, when it talks about he stood me upright, I don't really know if that means he woke up, I believe he woke him up, or if he was just sleeping, standing up, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Well, I'm assuming he woke him up. I mean, I'm assuming he brought him back too. And, he said he fell on his face in verse 17, so... Mm. You know, he's saying, you know, did he wake up or did he just stand up still in a daze? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm assuming he was awake to understand what he was being said. You would think so, yeah. Because I know in verse 27 it says he fainted and was sick. So I'm assuming he was awake to faint. Yeah. So I'm assuming he woke up, you know what I mean? That would make, only make sense, I would think. But. This does take all, all this contact with uh, angels and all these visions and so forth takes a lot out of Daniel. You see that, you know, several times. It's not easy to receive all this weighty stuff. Yeah. Did you did you say that Gabriel and Michael are the only two names that we have? Of the angels, yeah. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? You'd think we'd have a ton more. Talk there, about a lot. Or, I mean, there, there are some, like, names of, like, types of angels, like cherubim and seraphim and archangel. And, angel of the Lord. Yeah, angel of the Lord, and, you know, I don't know if there's any other... So Sometimes we're not sure in the New Testament if we're referring to good or bad, you know, celestial beings in some passages. So, but What does celestial mean? Well, I'm using it to mean supernatural. Celestial would usually mean associated with heaven. But okay. I'm trying to come up with something that means a greater being. Yeah, okay. It's funny that Gabriel and Michael are used like... More than once. Mm -hmm. Like, you, there's so many of them. Like, you, know, you never have to duplicate. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but you know how it is. Uh, they all have their own jobs, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, these may be. And Michael was the archangel and mm -hmm. seems to have been especially associated with Israel. We'll see a little later on in the book. So that might be a reason why he would be more used. I don't know about Gabriel. Are both Gabe and Michael going to be in this book? Yes, they are in this book. Are there, I really don't know. Are there different levels of angels or just different kind, just different jobs? Like every, or, you know what I mean? Well, I mean, if you've got an archangel, you're, I'm assuming that he's high. high yeah, right? He's above yeah. the others. You know, I'm just not sure I know enough to answer the rest of that. Okay. Um, I mean, you see in, like, the throne scene in Revelation 4 and 5, the living creatures and the elders that seem to have been at least closer to God mm -hmm. than the myriads of angels that were around them. But, I mean, we just don't have a lot 
of specific details on like hierarchy kinds of things. So I don't know. Okay. Now maybe one reason that we tend not to think about angels as much is because there's a lot of things we don't know, even though there's just lots of passages that refer to angels. Mm -hmm. Uh, so maybe we need to be willing to not know and still talk about what we do know. Alright, other thoughts? Uh, through 19. Alright, so the ram are the kings of Media and Persia. Uh, the goat is the kingdom of Greece, the large horn, the first king, the four horns, the four kingdoms that come from that. So we've got those down. And then, in the latter period of their rule, this king will arise in verse 23, and he's a mess. He's proud, and he's a politician, and he's destructive, and he does what he wants to, and he destroys mighty men and the holy people, and he, he you know, you can't trust him, and he exalts himself, and he destroys many while they are at ease in verse 25, even opposes the prince of princes. I get the impression he's a really bad dude. You know, he's, he's bold, he's um, crafty, you know, and, but finally, in the end of verse 25, he'll be broken without human agency. That is, God ultimately is the one who's going to break the back of Antioch's epiphanies. Uh, probably a good thing. I probably wouldn't have been broken by anyone else. But this is not something that's going to happen immediately. Daniel is told that the vision is true, but it's to be kept secret for it pertains to many days in the future. When Daniel wrote, we're talking about events that were nearly 400 years later. They're not events that are really particularly relevant in the lifetime of Daniel's contemporaries. So seal it up, because we'll need it later on down the road. This is where God's saying, I am giving Daniel information for later times. That's not maybe so common in the prophets. A lot of times, even the information about later times is given more for the benefit of the people that they're speaking with or writing to right then. But Daniel makes it clear, this really isn't for us. This really has, you know, its point many days in the future. Yes? Why, why is God giving them all this permission if it doesn't matter for until so much further down the road? Well, as I said, you know, I think one of the purposes, at least to me, is for those generations later on to know in those days what was happening and that God had it under control, already had known it for hundreds of years, and that they could trust the Lord in that period of time. Since he didn't send a prophet at that time, that he communicates with them ahead of time. In some senses also, it, it, it never hurts us to know what's going to happen in the future, right. in the sense that it shows us that God's got the future under control, even if it's not things that are going to happen in our lifetime. Okay. You see that God's purpose is accomplished. So, you know, anything we know about what God even will do is something good for us to know about, but it still, you know, wasn't something that Daniel's hearers originally were going to experience. Okay, and around what time are we... Are at right now in Daniel's time? Well, this is the uh, third year of Belshazzar. 
So uh, I think that would bring us down to maybe 548, 549, somewhere into there. Oh, he's telling about is it going to happen until the 170s or 170? Yeah, yeah. Say, yeah, something like 168 to 164 is the, is the bulk of what Anne has did. He started raining in 175. Okay, so that's about a four, 400 years. So almost 400 years. About 400 yeah. Years there. Okay. If it's 400 years, that's not soon. No. That's uh, many days in the future. God's a true psychic. Yeah. He knows what's going to happen. Well, obviously. He knows everything. Yeah, yeah he does. All right. So, you know, and, and, and that means that nothing catches him off guard. Nothing is going to upset his plan. Mm-hmm. You know, because you'd think if he didn't really know what would happen, how does he know if maybe something's going to happen that he wasn't anticipating that's going to somehow derail what he's got in mind? Well, that's impossible. He knew everything was going to happen. Yeah. So, in a, in a great sense, I think it gives us comfort. Yeah. You know, there's not going to, you know, not, God's not going to just say, man, I sure plan to do this, but I, I, some unexpected things occurred and I just couldn't handle it. You know, it doesn't work that way with God. Yeah. Well, how old was Daniel? Well, this would have been about uh, 54 five years or a little bit more after he was taken into captivity. So I'm guessing 70. Okay. Um, how does this, does this have any correlation with the dude in uh, at, uh, Revelations that was deceiving a lot of people? No. Okay. How did how was Antiochus Epiphanes broken without human agency? I think God ultimately was the one who broke him. I mean... I, I didn't know if there was like one of those neat things about his no, death or... No, I don't know anything about that particularly. I mean, there were some men involved. I mean, the, the Maccabees, mm-hmm. you know, were kind of guerrilla fighters in that time. Mm-hmm. But it's like... Antiochus was like way more powerful than they were. I mean, it's like, you know, there's no way. And yet, yet he was broken. So clearly, this wasn't really by human hands. This was God's doing. I mean, there wasn't any people that were strong enough to, to knock him out. Because he had a lot of Jews on his side, too. I mean, he divided the Jews. There were a lot of people who would, you know want to be with Antiochus to get favors and positions and things like that. So the Jews didn't even put up a united front against him. So this would have been the beginning of the Hellenistic Jews, perhaps, this, generally this era. Well, I don't know about the beginning. I mean, I'm sure you're, I mean, the Hellenistic Jews, you're talking about, like, from the New Testament perspective, the Hellenistic Jews, or what are you saying? In the sense, yeah, in the sense that they were adopting the, some of the Greek customs. Yeah, well, I think you would have had some Jews already doing that, particularly in okay. areas away from Jerusalem. Okay. But you certainly had more of that in Jerusalem at this time, as, you know, a lot of people sold out, essentially, to Antiochus. And how did Daniel keep this vision secret? Well, I mean, are we like, do we have like a, okay, we've written out the book of Daniel, now we're going to put it in a time capsule and you can open it 50 years after my death? No, I don't think he meant it like that. I think he's saying, 
you know, seal this up, preserve it. You know, not that don't let anybody know about it, but but you keep this so it can be referred to later on. That's that's my take. Well, they had access to the book of Daniel at that later time. Right. Do do we have any knowledge about how the book of Daniel would have affected uh, the Israel, the Jews at that time? I don't, but somebody may. Yeah, I don't know either. But I am assuming it probably did. I mean, you know, whether we whether there is any historical information available or not, I would think that the Maccabees and some of those who joined with them probably got comfort and encouragement, not only from this passage. We're going to read a lot more about all of this. I believe this period of time is also covered in much more detail in 1121 all the way to the end of the book. I take all 1121 and following as referring to this period. So this is almost like an introduction to that, where we get a lot more information. And I think that passage particularly gives a lot of comfort and support and hope to the few who were sticking faith to the Lord and were trying to throw off Antiochus' rule. Wait, I overlooked it. Did you, did you say, was there a verse that you said... That says that Daniel told them to, to hide it or something? Or? 826 is what we're basing that on. But now that's going to depend on your translation also. What do you have in 826? And the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told is true, therefore seal up the vision. Oh, okay. Yeah, you have to seal it up. And the New York United says keep it secret. But keeping it secret probably isn't the best translation. I mean, because for us, secret means don't let anybody find out. And that's uh, not what it means. Okay. It just means preserve it, guard it. Seal it up in the sense of it's not going to be for now, okay. so keep this for the future. Okay. Not make sure nobody finds out. No, it's not that. Okay. So I mean, people could have known about it. They just sure. wanted to make sure nothing happened to it. Right. Type of thing. Okay. Right. Okay. And it's and it's an indication that don't expect these things are going to happen in your lifetime. Okay, that's true. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, there are questions and comments. Uh, where are we? Uh, what is the, in verse 19, the appointed time of the end? The end of what? All right. That's a very good question. <laughs> and I don't know if I have a very good answer, uh, but he talks about that quite a bit. He says that also in verse 17. You sort of have that idea in verse 26, although you don't have that kind of phrasing. And then you're going to have some more of that, uh, I may not find it exactly, in the end of 11 and in 12. Uh, even like right, uh, 12, 13, uh, and, and I think some other passages in there, uh, 12, 9, and so forth. Um, 11.35, I'm just picking out a few verses. So you've got that kind of language, the end, the end of time, the end time, whatever, a lot. What I think that's saying is the far future. I think, you know, this is like, I, I would compare this to like Joel 2 with the last days. It come back and come about in the last days. The last days is just saying in the far future. In the latter times. In the, in the you know, end part. In the sense that it's in the far future. That may not be the best explanation. If there's a better one, I haven't figured it out. 
So that's what I do with it at the moment, is to say, this is for end-time things, that is, way in the future, not for near-time things. we got two choices, either for now, or for its for, for later. And sometimes when he talks about the later, he just talks about that. That's the stuff at the end. It's not, and what we're doing right now is the beginning. Not that we are intended to see that as like the end of time, clearly, the world didn't end when, when Anax Epiphanes, you know, was doing all that kind of stuff. That's the best I can do. Does somebody have a better explanation than that? Well, I had written down that it could refer to the end of the vision. And I assumed I heard that from you, but... Maybe not. I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, the vision, the vision spans some fair amount of time, and if could be referring to the end of the vision, that also equals far in the future, because he's already said that these things in 26 are many days in the future. Yeah, it doesn't that didn't seem very right to me at the moment, but I don't know. I think those are difficult things, and in fact, I mean, this goes along with several things in the Bible that are challenging. I mean, I think we're challenged by those passages in the New Testament. We talk about this at the last hour and mm-hmm. in the last days these things will happen and, and uh, you know, uh, there's several things that talk about the end in First Peter and James and things like that. You know, the end of all things is at hand, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, all that is kind of challenging for us and I, I think to see the end as a, you know, here is the future or maybe just to think of it in the New Testament perspective as being kind of, um, you know, the time of the great crisis with Christ or something like that. Um, clearly, I have beyond my element in that. So. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts? Why do you think this, in, in 27 it says he made... He got sick. I mean, did he get physically sick? Because he just he's seeing all these. It's just like I, taking a toll on him or something. I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, for one thing, remember that somebody like Daniel is very involved with what he's seeing. He doesn't see this dispassionately. You know, he's almost living this as he sees it, and this was overwhelming stuff. You know, he's 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 wow. This is just disorienting. It's exhausting. It's troubling. Um, you know, I don't know. This is probably a poor analogy. It's what comes to my mind. You know, I have just watched very little stuff. Very few movies. You know, very few movies on TV. Very few movies on TV. But I've gone to the theater, you know, very few times. Probably once a year on the average since I was 20. You know, I mean, I may have seen 40 movies, maybe. I don't know. Something like that. Well, you know what? A movie that's pretty gripping is really weird for me. You know, if you kind of get into it, it's like I get disoriented. I mean, like, I go up kind of the movie theater, and it's hard for me to distinguish reality from the movie. It's like I lived the movie. (laughs) Now, for, for you guys, I think, that see movies all the time... They're in that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that explains a few things. They, they, they feel weird when they come to reality. 
<laughs> yeah, maybe. I'm assuming that for most of you, you know, you kind of uh, analyze things technically and you don't really live the movie while you're seeing it. But I really do. Because I just don't see it very often. It's a big screen. You know, you're right there in it. And it just, I remember the first few times, I mean, I saw like Chariots of Fire was one of the first movies I saw. And wow. It was just, it took me a few hours to kind of really just not have that as almost it was part, it was part of my life. It was weird. You know, so, you know, can you imagine what it would be like to see these visions of God? I mean, it's got to be, you know, a million times more intense than a movie. And I think it just, it just exhausted him to see this, to kind of live through this as he saw it. Uh, I don't know. That, that's what I'm seeing, is this is just not an easy thing to, to see and to go through. Well, he fainted at the beginning. Yeah. And he has to make him stand up. So, I mean, he's already, you know. <laughs> Terrifying. Yeah. 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 Overwhelming. So this would be like a 3D IMAX with THX uh, surround sound. Well, I don't know. Seat, seat, seat shaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, well, Nehemiah was really affected by the news that he received about his countrymen. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. that's probably small in scale to this, but it yeah. And John cried when he saw that nobody could open the book. Absolutely, yeah. So these guys would really live the vision. It wasn't like something where they were just kind of seeing this and he's kind of dealing with it intellectually. You see a lot of the prophets in the visions, they would react. In fact, sometimes they'd, they'd cry out to God, you know, don't do this or why are you doing that or, you know, please help us or have mercy or whatever. Judah is so small. Yeah, exactly. Amos. Yeah. So, I don't know. I think this is probably a you know, more traumatic experience for Daniel than maybe we would have thought just reading through it quickly. Good, good observation. I was going to talk some more about that. Here, so. I try to put my, I try to think like, like what if an angel just came in the center of a circle right now? You know what I mean? I try to, you try to like, yeah, I just try to. Where would we all think to? Yeah. <laughs> 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 I mean, it's just, you know, I, I don't know. It's easy when you, I, I try to, I try to make. It's easier for me to understand if I try to put myself at, you know, where. If it happened right now, you know what I mean? But Definitely. I couldn't really imagine what it would be like to see a vision or see an angel. Overwhelming, at least. Pretty interesting study. <laughs> Other thoughts? Uh, chapter 8. Okay. Chapter 9. Um, let's, uh, let's.